I would like to read what I think is one of the most moving, gripping passages in the entire Old Testament, and I'd like to ask you to turn to Nehemiah 3 to read along with me. You may have some time, a little difficulty finding Nehemiah. It's um, probably has not been on your reading agenda lately, but uh, if you find the center of the Old Testament and uh, turn a few uh, books to the left, you'll find it. Samuel, Kings, Chronicles, Ezra, and Nehemiah. Nehemiah 3. Then Eliashib, the high priest, arose with his brothers, the priests, and built the sheep gate. They consecrated it and hung its doors. They consecrated the wall to the Tower of the Hundred and the Tower of Hananel. And next to him, the men of Jericho built, and next to them, Zachar, the son of Imri, built. Now the sons of Hasenaah built the fish gate. They laid its beams and hung its doors with its bolts and bars. And next to them, Merimoth, the son of Uriah, the son of Hakaz, made repairs. And next to him, Meshulam, the son of Barakiah, the son of Meshazabel, made repairs. And next to him, Zadok, the son of Baana, also made repairs. Moreover, next to him, the Tekoites made repairs, but their nobles did not support the work of their masters. Then Joiada, the son of Paseah, and Meshulam, the son of Besadeah, repaired the old gate. They laid its beams and hung its doors with its bolts and its bars. Next to them, Melatea, the Gibeonite, and Jadon, the Maranathite, the men of Gibeon and of Mizpah also made repairs to the official seat of the governor of the province beyond the river. Next to him, Uziel, the son of Harhiah of the goldsmiths, made repairs. And next to him, Hananiah, one of the perfumers, made repairs. And they restored Jerusalem as far as the broad wall. And next to them, Rephiah, the son of Hur, the official of half the district of Jerusalem, made repairs. Next to them, Jediah, the son of Harumaf, made repairs opposite his house. And next to him, Hattush, the son of Hashabneah, made repairs. And I know what you're probably thinking. That's moving all right. It's, if you read much more of that chapter, I'm going to move right out the door to my car. Every once in a while in reading through the Old Testament, you encounter a chapter like this, one of these interminable lists with unpronounceable names. You'll never know how long I practiced to... Uh, get all those names right. That's why I didn't read past verse 10. That's as far as I got. But um, there must be some profit here. The Apostle Paul tells us that there is. He says all Scripture, and he was thinking primarily of the Old Testament, is profitable for teaching, for correction, for instruction of righteousness, in righteousness that the man of God may be Mature, equipped for every good work, so there has to be some profit in this passage. A number of uh, years ago, when I was in college, I was associated with the Navigators, and we used to uh, get together periodically to help one another in Scripture memory. And I remember a friend of mine once quoting Second Chronicles twenty six eighteen At Parbar westward forth the causeway, and to it Parbar. And I thought that uh, in the interim he had learned Hebrew. But uh, it turns out to be a list of responsibilities for the Levitical gatekeepers in Jerusalem. And Parbar was the name of the court. 
and uh, the causeway was simply an arched passageway. And uh, four were assigned the responsibility at Parbar and two at the causeway. And that explained the passage to me, but uh, it was months or maybe years before I ever read Second Chronicles because I knew the whole book must be full of things like that. Now, that's unfortunate because uh, there is profit in all of Scripture, and we need to uh, see what profit there is in this chapter. Now, let me give you a little bit of background to the book of Nehemiah because this book may be unfamiliar to many of you. Believe it or not, Nehemiah is one of the liveliest books in the Old Testament. It's based on uh, Nehemiah's personal memoirs, his diary, and it's full of uh, ad-libs and asides and and uh, comments that Nehemiah makes in, in root. He was a very uh, down-to-earth, real person, and the assignment that he had was uh, very taxing, very difficult, but uh, he did it by God's grace. He uh, lived back in the middle of the 5th century before Christ, during the time of uh, Socrates and, and the Greek uh, golden era, but uh, Nehemiah himself was not a Greek. He was a Jew who lived in Persia. He was descended from a number of Jews that were deported into Babylon by Nebuchadnezzar. And uh, his descendants had lived there for about 140 years, and he himself had grown up in Babylon. Sometime prior to his, his birth, Babylon actually fell, and Persia became the dominant power in the ancient uh, world. And uh, Nehemiah was the cupbearer to King Artaxerxes. Now, that title would suggest that he was nothing more than a glorified butler, but that's really not true. The uh, cupbearer in those days was the confidant of the king. He was normally the king's closest friend. He had access to the king and was trusted by the king in in a way that uh, no one, uh, no other person was. And normally they were very wise men, counselors, counselors. one of the uh, most famous of the wise men in the ancient world, a man by the name of Ahikar, is said to be the cupbearer, and we know historically he was the chancellor to the king of, uh, of Assyria, Sennacherib. So these were important men. That's the point I'm trying to make. Nehemiah wasn't uh, merely a wine steward. He was, he was an important official in the Persian court. And we're told that uh, one cold December day, Hananiah, one of his brothers, and some men from from Judah came and told him of the plight of the Judeans that were living in Jerusalem. They had begun the task of rebuilding the walls. The Persian appointees there, the governor of Samaria to the north and the Ammonite uh, governor, had opposed the project, sent a letter off to Artaxerxes, and Artaxerxes issued a decree stopping the work, and the walls were torn down again. And this was uh, announced to Nehemiah, perhaps in the hope that he could affect some change in Artaxerxes' attitude. Not uh, likely, because Artaxerxes was uh, pretty uh, flinty-hearted, but there was always the possibility. Because in the decree that Artaxerxes had issued, there was a loophole. As you know, the law of the Medes and Persians was irrevocable, but there was one line in the decree that stated if uh, he made another decree, issued another decree, then they could rebuild the walls. So um, Nehemiah began to pray. 
He knew that the heart of the king was in God's hands, and God could change his attitude. And uh, the content of that prayer is described for us in chapter 1. We'll not take time to read it. But it appears that Nehemiah prayed the same prayer every day for four months. And the content of the prayer essentially was this. He reminded himself of God's faithfulness. He had promised Abraham that he would make of him a great nation, and that nation would bring blessing to the entire world. And uh, Nehemiah knew that God was true to his word. He could be trusted. However, Israel had not kept up their end of the bargain, so he wasn't sure that the deal was still on. But he counted on the compassion and the mercy of God to act even though Israel had been unfaithful. And the prayer apparently concluded each day with the words in verse 11, O Lord, I beseech thee, may thine ear be attentive to the prayer of thy servant and the prayer of thy servants who delight to revere thy name and make thy servant successful today and grant him compassion before this man. The man, of course, was Artaxerxes. And he prayed every day that that, uh, Artaxerxes... uh, that something would happen that would afford him the opportunity to speak to Artaxerxes about the plight of his countrymen in Judah. Well, the uh, months went by, and uh, there was no opportunity to speak to him until one night, Artaxerxes and his queen called for Nehemiah. And when he came, he looked depressed. It may have occurred to him, that uh, a long period of time had passed and God had not acted, and uh, or maybe he just had a bad day. I don't know. Maybe it was a blue Monday. But uh, in any case, when he came into Artaxerxes' presence, Artaxerxes noticed his long face, and he said, What's the matter? And uh, Nehemiah now has his golden opportunity. I said to the king, I'm reading now from chapter 2, verse 3, I said to the king, Let the king live forever. Why should my face not be sad when the city, the place of my father's tombs, lies desolate and its gates have been consumed by fire? He makes it a personal, not a political matter. He doesn't mention Jerusalem at all. He simply uh, describes uh, the destruction of his own city and implies that his depression uh, is based on that uh, destruction. Then the king said to me, What? Would you request? So I prayed to the God of heaven, and I said to the king. He put up a quick prayer, and he laid out his scheme. That's why I love this guy, Nehemiah. He is so practical. He's a man of faith and prayer, but he's a man of practical action. He's a man after God's own heart, but he has a good head on his shoulders. He plans. He thinks. He schemes. He plans. He has an idea. And this he spells out to the king in the verses that uh, follow. Basically, what he wanted was, uh, first of all, letters, letters of safe conduct that would take him through the western provinces of Persia, and secondly, timber from the forests at Lebanon to rebuild the citadel, the fortress, as he puts it in verse 8, and the wall in his house. What a practical man. He needed a place to stay. And uh, evidently, Jerusalem was overcrowded. There were no apartments, and so Nehemiah Uh, orders timber for his own house as well as for the wall. The king gave his permission, sent Nehemiah off to Jerusalem with the officers of the army and the horsemen, and 
Nehemiah arrives in uh, Jerusalem some months later with the uh, Persian cavalry. Immediately there is opposition in verse 10 when Sanballat the Horonite, who was the governor of Samaria, and Tobiah the Ammonite heard about it. It was very pleasing to them. It was very displeasing to them that someone had come to seek the welfare of the sons of Israel. So these two Persian, these two Persian appointees uh, resist uh, the work. But that night, we're told, he arose, I and a few men with me. I did not tell anyone what my God was putting into my mind to do for Jerusalem. And there was no animal with me except the animal on which I was riding. So I went out at night by the valley gate in the direction of the dragon's well and on to the refuse gate or the dung gate, inspecting the walls of Jerusalem. Now, if you want to take your map out, there is an insert in your bulletin. It has a small uh, map. And you can follow Nehemiah's tour. He uh, went out the gate on the southeast corner of the city and he made a, an inspection tour of the city of David to the south at uh, peninsula that extends down to the south from the main part of the city. That's the old city of David. And uh, when he got to the southern tip of the city, the king's pool, there was no place for my mount to pass. So I went up at night by the ravine, that is the Kidron Valley, and inspected the wall. Then I entered the valley gate again and returned. When he came to the east side of the city of David, he couldn't pass through the rubble. His horse just wouldn't, couldn't pick uh, her way through the debris. He had to go down into the bottom of the valley. He made his way as far as he could up the valley and uh, then had to turn back uh, to his original uh, starting point. Now, what had happened was this. The uh, Canaanites, before David conquered the city of Jerusalem and the Israelites uh, afterward, had built a series of terraces along the east side of the city of David. When the Babylonians destroyed the city, they tore down the uh, retaining walls uh, to these terraces, and the whole thing slid down into the valley. So there was an enormous pile of rubble there, still there today. If you visit Jerusalem and you look into the excavation trenches that are there, you'll see huge stones. They're just piled up uh, on one another. And that's what Nehemiah encountered, and he couldn't get through that area, so he went back through the uh, valley gate to make his report to the uh, Jews, the priests, the nobles, the officials, and others who were going to do the work. And he says in verse 17, the situation is bad. You see the bad situation we're in. Jerusalem is desolate, and its gates burned by fire. Come, let us rebuild the wall of Jerusalem, that we may no longer be a reproach. And I told them how the hand of my God had been favorable to me, and also about the king's words which he had spoken to me. Then they said, Let us arise and build. So they put their hands to the good work. But almost immediately there was opposition again from Sanballat and Tobiah, and another fellow who's uh, named uh, Geshem, Geshem the Arab, heard it. They mocked and despised us and said, What is this thing you are doing? Are you rebelling against the king? Now this was no small thing. Geshem the Arab was uh, an Arab uh, sheikh and chieftain over an enormous area. Uh, the, uh, from what we uh, have been able to determine, he ruled all of Sinai and part of the Arabian Desert and uh, most of Egypt, the uh, Nile Delta. And so he had a lot of power. He was an important man. These were all Persian officials with authority to shut the project down if they could. And it was only because Nehemiah had Artaxerxes' letter that he was able to begin the work at all. 
in his comment to Sanballat, Tobiah, and Geshem is that the God of heaven will give us success. Therefore, we, his servants, will arise and build, but you have no portion, right, or memorial in Jerusalem. And the key to this chapter, the link between this chapter and chapter 3, is that phrase, we will arise and build. Because that's picked up in chapter 3. Elisha, the high priest, arose and built. And then you have a description of the building itself, beginning way up at the north, if you... Look at your map. You'll see the Sheep Gate. And the description of the rebuilding of the walls continues in a counterclockwise fashion around the city, making a complete circuit of the city and ending again at the Sheep Gate. The key phrase throughout is each man worked alongside his brother. They worked together. They cooperated to get the task done. I suspect... If we were building, if we were involved in this project today, we would discover that the priests would not work at all because the clergy doesn't work. Uh, they're not paid to work, six days invisible, seventh day incomprehensible. That's a good description of the clergy. They have been to seminary. They do not get their hands dirty. Besides, they wore those lovely linen robes, and uh, you can't work in robes like that. The uh, clergy wouldn't work at all. The people from Jericho wouldn't work, because after all, they have their own city to defend. Jericho was undefended. It was on the fords of the Jordan. It was a strategic point, and I'm sure they would think, why should we work? On the city of Jerusalem, what's the profit to us? We'll go down to Jericho and uh, work. Meshulam, down in verse 6, wouldn't work because they gave him the old gate to work on. And the goldsmiths wouldn't work because their union prohibited lifting anything that heavy or working that long. The perfumers wouldn't work because they'd get all sweaty. Uh, no one would want to work on the dung gate. And uh, the people in verses 20 and following wouldn't work because we're told they all built a section of the wall in front of their house. When Nehemiah encountered all this rubble on the east side of the city, he changed the line of the wall, taking it up over the crest of the hill rather than down in the bottom of the valley. And what he did was build the wall, build the wall right across the front of their house, wrecked their view, depressed their property values. They wouldn't want to work. And uh, everyone would want to do it their own way. No one would want to cooperate. Parts of the wall would be 60 feet tall. Other parts, 20. Some people would build out of little rocks, some great big rocks. Some people would build an earth-fill wall. Uh, the uh, women that are mentioned here in verse 12, the daughters of Shalom would probably want to put a picture window in their section of the wall or plant ivy in the rocks. And the whole thing would be a fiasco. No one would want to work on the wall. The natural thing is to do what you want to do, how you want to do it, when you want to do it. The supernatural thing is to submit yourself to some higher cause and work toward a common goal, cooperate. You know, in an independent church like this, there is a tendency uh, for very independent people 
to be gathered together. We're all a bunch of mavericks. That's why we're here. And we don't like to cooperate with anyone. But uh, grace makes us cooperate. We can set aside our own personal self-interest and attack the task that God has given us to do. That's what grace can do. And you'll notice that's precisely what happened. The high priest, despite his position, arose with his brothers, the priests, and built the sheep gate. And uh, apparently Ezra, whose exploits are described in the book of Ezra and in Nehemiah, worked alongside of them. This grand old teacher of Israel was apparently part of this uh, project. There were representatives from entire towns, the men of Jericho in verse 2, the Tekoites in verse 5. They came from Amos' uh, Amos's hometown. Uh, there were individuals who worked. There were numerous names, too, uh, too numerous to uh, recite, names of individuals who gave themselves to the task. Various social classes are described here. There are officials. In verse 9, the official of half the district of Jerusalem made repairs. Raphael was mayor of half of Jerusalem. His counterpart, Shalom, in verse 12, who was mayor of the other half of Jerusalem, made repairs. And uh, in verse 18, the official from Kela, these were all mayors of, uh, of large cities. And on the other end of the social spectrum, there were these temple servants, the Netanim, in verse 31, who uh, labored on the wall. Uh, Meshulam, in verse 6, was a very wealthy man. In, uh, in chapter 6 of the book of Nehemiah, he's described as being a very influential and powerful person in Judah. I've already mentioned that the women worked on the wall. In verse 12, the daughters of Shalom, the mayor of half of Jerusalem, uh, they rolled up their sleeves and uh, went to work. There were a couple of bachelors that uh, did their part. Uh, down in verse 23, after them, Benjamin and Hashub carried out repairs in front of their house. And Hashub worked even though he had a bad cold. And then uh, there's another fellow in verse 30, Meshulam, who carried out repairs in front of his own cell. The Hebrew word means a one-room uh, apartment. This was his bachelor pad, apparently. And uh, then there are these folks who built the wall even though it uh, ruined their homes. And then there are various hard workers who are described here. Uh, Hanun, in verse 13, And the inhabitants of Zenoah repaired the valley gate. They built it and hung its doors with its bolts and its bars. 500 yards of wall they repaired. There are a number of people who are said to have repaired another section of the wall. That is, they repaired the section that first assigned to them and then uh, took, a, took on another section of wall. And there's this fellow Baruch, the son of Zabai, in verse uh, 20, who zealously repaired uh, another section. And uh, throughout the term that's translated repaired is a Hebrew word that may, means to make exceedingly strong. And the implication is that they actually rebuilt the wall much stronger than it was before. 
They really put themselves to the task. There must have been a number of people who really didn't know what they were doing. I'm sure the high priests and the goldsmiths and the perfumers were not equipped for this sort of thing. Doris Loomis was telling me this morning about a a man who went to the lumber yard and asked for a four-by-two. And uh, the lumber lumberman said, a four-by-two? How long do you want it? And he said, wait a minute, I'll check. And he goes out to his truck and he comes back and he says, well, we're going to need it for quite a while because we're going to put it in our house. <laughs> so there are probably some people like that that we're building. But unfortunately, not only were there workers, there were also some shirkers. In verse 5, the nobles from Tekoa did not support the work of their supervisors. The, if you look in the margins, says they didn't put their neck to. It's a picture of an ox submitting to a yoke. They would not submit to their supervisor. They were above it all. They were too good for this sort of thing. And they wouldn't work. And then there was the usual complement of complainers and and critics and people who didn't like the way the wall looked, and they groused and griped and complained throughout the whole project. And then there was some real opposition. In chapter 4, our friend Sanballat turns up again in Tobiah, and they began to ridicule the project. In verse 2, what are these feeble Jews doing? Are they going to restore it for themselves? Can they offer sacrifices? Can they finish in a day? Can they revive the stones from the dusty rubble, even the burned ones? And Tobiah makes a little joke here in verse 3. If a fox should jump on it, he will break their stone wall down. But uh, they keep on praying in verse 4, and they keep on working. And in verse 6, we're told, We built the wall, and the whole wall was joined together to half its height, for the people had a mind to work, a heart to work. But, Things got worse before they got better. There was a conspiracy on the part of these uh, Persian officials. And uh, the people were afraid. The Jews, in verse 12, who lived near them came and told us ten times, they'll come up against us from every place where you may turn. So uh, Nehemiah armed half of the men and half worked on the city, girded, as he puts it, with a sword on their thigh in case there was an attack. And then in chapter 5, there's another attack from within described. The uh, social organization of the nation almost broke down. They began to exact usury from one another and charge high interest rates, and they were selling themselves into slavery to one another, and Nehemiah puts a stop to that. In chapter 6, there's an attempt on Nehemiah's life, and uh, he prays in verse 9, O God, strengthen my hands. And in verse 15 of chapter 6, we read, So the wall was completed on the 25th of the month Elul in 52 days. They had to complete the wall before the summer, and uh, because that's normally the time when kings went off to war. And uh, there was a time, uh, uh, there was a, period of time that they had to complete the structure, and they did it in 52 days because they had a heart to work. They were willing to set aside their self-interest and uh, go to work to do the thing that God had called them to do. And my question this morning is, are we? Are we willing? Do we have a heart to work? Are we willing to set aside our uh, self-interest? 
especially with reference to this move that we're facing. This is always a dangerous time for a body of believers because there will be a lot of stresses and strains uh, to which we've not been subjected in the past. And uh, our tempers will wear thin and and the leaders will uh, make mistakes and blunders and and there will be all sorts of opportunities for tolerance and patience to be to be expressed. This um, this will be a hard time. We're moving to another building that will cause some adjustments. Uh, we have to move things in and out of rooms. And that will be difficult. Uh, the seats are hard over there. We don't uh, have good musical instruments to use. The uh, room is nice. We're going to try to make it presentable. But it's, uh, it's certainly not what we're accustomed to. And the acoustics are not that good. I'm not trying to discourage you. I'm just, we're just facing facts. This will be a difficult time for the next year until we get our, our new building uh, built on, on Eustick Road. Therefore, we need to pull together, not pull apart. My experience has been that if churches are going to split at all, this is generally the time that they do because there's so many strains upon us. But uh, it doesn't have to happen. As a matter of fact, this can be an opportunity for advance on our part. The world can see how much we love each other and how much we're willing to tolerate and how forgiving we can be. As Paul puts it, be kind, tender-hearted, forgiving one another, even as God, for Christ's sake, has forgiven us. God does not get angry with us when we make mistakes. He moves in to help. And when we make mistakes, we need to move in to support and help and encourage each other. Now, there are a lot of little tasks that need to be done. We have to move chairs in and out, and we have to set up and take down tables. And, and for a while, it's, there's going to be quite a bit of confusion. But if we will all stand together and work together, shoulder to shoulder, we'll get the job done, and we'll grow as a body. This doesn't have to be a time when, when we stagnate or when everything is static. This is a time to grow and mature through this uh, difficult time. Now, what I would like to uh, do for a few minutes is spend some time in prayer for this move. That's what Nehemiah did, and uh, that's what we need to do. And I'd like to ask some of you men or women to stand and pray and uh, pray that we'll be tolerant, patient with each other. Pray that all the confusion will be allayed and we can quickly get settled down and, and uh, feel at home there at Bishop Kelly. Well, let me say one thing more. I forgot this. Uh, some of you are a little concerned about the fact that we're going to a Catholic high school. This is no problem to me, but it may be a problem to some of you. And on a couple of occasions, I know we have quite a large number of, of ex-Catholics here. And uh, you really, you've, as you put it, you don't really want to go back into that setting. But we need to understand that the church is not a building. This building is not sacred. That building is not sacred. It's just a building. That's all. The church is people. We can meet anywhere. And the early church did. They met in synagogues. They met in the catacombs, that is, in the tombs. And uh, almost any place that was available to them, they could meet. We can meet anywhere. 
Now, the, the school itself is not offensive, and I think you'll discover when we get there that, uh, that that's the case. But for those of you that have a problem with this location, you need to think that through. That's just a building. It's made out of stone and bricks and, and four-by-twos. And, uh, and that's, that's just a building. That's all it is. It'll keep the rain off and keep us warm this winter. We are the church, and we can meet anywhere. Now let's pray, and let's ask God to enrich us uh, during this time. Just stand where you are and pray with enough volume that we can hear you.